Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Last time I was here, I was about to embark on a two-week vacation, uh, and I was completely unplugging, which I did do. Now I'm back, and I am ready for the fall, I think. I'm ready for the fall. And so for everyone out there who is about to go back to school or just went back to school, hopefully you got a chance to really decompress and unplug and you are as ready for the fall or more ready than even I am. Uh, I know that you all have lots of questions. We have lots of answers. And we're going to do uh, a long Q&A section here uh, in the second part of the show. But before we get to that, um, Our podcast obviously focuses on getting into college. That's our title. Um, But what happens when it's finally time for you to let go and send your students off to school so they've gotten in, but now it's time for them to go? And I'm really excited to welcome my colleague, Amy Alexander, who is a former admissions officer at Yale and also, and probably more importantly for our conversation today, a parent who has sent more than one child off to college. Hi, Amy. Hello, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we're excited to have you here. My son is actually starting high school this year, uh, so Mm. I am not facing this quite yet, but I know it's on my horizon. I know it's going to be really quick. Uh, And we talk about this a little bit uh, in, in the work that we do, and then we also, I read about it a lot, the challenges that parents can have in kind of letting go when their kids go off to college. So, you know, what, did you find it really difficult? And if not, why not? So, you know, what, what do you think is most challenging about this piece? So there's a couple things. Um, you know, I did just go through this. My baby, I have three children, 24, 22, and 19. And so my baby finished um, his freshman year, and he'll be heading back. Actually, he goes uh, to Northwestern University, which is on the quarter system. So he starts a little later, but he'll be heading back about a month from now for his sophomore year. So I'm a good person to ask about this topic because I did experiencing it. I did experience it last year when my second went off um, four years ago. You know, it was hard. We were very close. It was my only girl. I have two boys and a girl sandwiched in the middle. But there was something about the third and the last one, and I know you have one, so it'll be one and mm-hmm. done going <laughs> off. And I was one of those, you know, I'm a college advisor. I do this. And I have, um, you know, my best friend's a psychologist who also does college advising on the side. So we talked about it. I prepared myself, and I thought, oh, I'm a cool mom. I'm going to be so good with this. <laughs> and for the most part, I was. But there was a small piece of me that did feel all the things I'm going to bring up in a minute um, that I think a lot of parents and students are feeling, and I didn't think I would, and I did. Now, I don't think I had it as severely because I was prepared, because I had a good support network. That's the most Mm -hmm. important thing. Uh, I had people to talk to and to be open and honest about it because these things are normal. They're all normal Mm -hmm. what you're feeling that... um, uh, you know, the feeling of separation, the feeling of, of rejection, you know, kind of all of these things that are going through your mind. I think, you know, and I'm going to talk about each of those pieces, but the first 
thing I wanted to bring up is really the overarching issue, why? Why do we feel this? Have we always Mm -hmm. felt this? I don't think so. If you were to ask my parents, they just thought that was the natural progression. You're 17, 18, you finish senior year of high school, you go off to college. The problem Mm -hmm. we're seeing now, um, and I've, I've done some research, and as I said, my best friend really does this topic. So uh, this is what she she deals with a lot with her her clients, and I've talked about it with her a lot. And the problem is we have moved into recently, I'd say in the last handful of years, maybe even decades, into what I call a helicopter society. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I want to say good news for parents because we always say we have helicopter parents, and that's not necessarily true. But we see a lot of students that have not developed skills and how to soothe themselves because their parents have solved all their problems. They've removed all the obstacles. So we refer to this generation of parents as the helicopter parents. But really, good news for parents, it's not really all your fault, right, or all (laughs) our fault. I think it's like it's a larger force of society, right? You know, so many of us say it's dangerous to let the kids go out. You know, um, we're victims of the increased power of the school system and schooling mentality that says, you know, kids develop best when they're guided and supervised by adults. Um, also victims of the increased legal and social uh, sanctions, allowing kids that don't allow kids into public spaces without adult accompaniment or supervision. Mm-hmm. So we become mm-hmm. a helicopter society, if you will. And if we want our kids to be prepared for college and we want us to be prepared to let them go, we have to counter all of these kind of social, legal, um, personal forces. We have to give children freedom. We have to... Um, you know, let them enjoy who they are and figure out how to be adult by practicing being an adult, giving them responsibility. And I think that's the biggest thing uh, that I wanted to make sure to get across. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I think I'm one of those helicopter moms. And it's, I say to my friends, because I have a lot of friends that have gone through this in the last handful of years and are going through it now, it's not really your fault. It's just kind of... A, what's happened in society right now. Well, exactly. I mean, I think about as my son was going through elementary school and middle school, the number of projects that he brought home that required me to be involved. And and I remember thinking, hey, I've done this. I don't need to go to middle school again. I did it already. It's up to him. And my son is pretty independent, probably, honestly, because I'm kind of like, well, I'm busy. I have other things that I need to be doing. So you're just going to have to do that yourself. But if, you know, you have the, the luxury of more time or you're anxious about, well, the school says that this is something I need to be involved in. And I do. It feels like even if you want to be a parent that is more hands off, there are many forces working against you and almost looking down on you if you take that, that approach um, to things. So I'm on board with what you're saying, that it isn't all our yeah. fault as parents, that we've been encouraged to be too involved. So what exactly. you, have, you have some great tips um, yes. to, to try and make it go more so, smoothly. So take us through some of those. Okay, so I I have six tips that I think if you follow these, you'll be in good shape, you know, because a lot of us don't want to admit that we are anxious or nervous or having certain feelings, Um, but we are. A lot of us are. So um, 
Some of the things that you might feel, a lot of us feel this in what I call kind of more of a typical or healthy manner, but some are extreme. So I just wanted to mention this before I dive into the tips. If your student or you are feeling extremely or severely sad, worried, anxious, angry, um, your thoughts are running wild, right? You have a constant tape in your Mm -hmm. head. You have a fear or or real reluctance of heading off to school or letting your student head off to school. Um, Nightmares, trouble sleeping, headaches, stomach aches, loss of appetite, crying, uh, substance abuse, things like this. Then you really want to go get some help. And there are a lot of resources before you go to school and also resources when you get to school. So not to fear. There's a lot of on-campus support, counseling centers, tutoring centers, mental health professionals, professionals, and your student and you shouldn't feel uh, at all shamed uh, or mm-hmm. concerned that you're reaching out. You're getting help um, for both the parent and the student. And I think that's a healthy thing. But most anxiety around the student leave for, leaving for college is pretty typical and manageable for both student and parent. So here are mm-hmm. some tips. The first one is think about this. Separation is not rejection. Relinquishing control gives both you and your student a newfound independence. Just because your student's heading off to college doesn't mean that your job is done or that you'll be left out of his or her life forever. She'll Mm -hmm. simply need you differently. The second thing, provide guidance. Sharing values and thoughts about various issues that you have discussed before with your student about drugs, alcohol, tough academic or interpersonal issues is a great idea to do before they head off to college. Not just once, but started a number of months before, if not during senior year. When you and your student's anxiety is high, uh, you or she may want to call a lot or overextend yourself. Third tip, be really careful. Set boundaries for contact. Whether it's regular texts or phone calls, offer advice and guidance always is apparent without pressure. Staying connected is a good thing. Your student's going to want it. You obviously want it. Just remain respectful of the student's privacy and need to learn to be independent. Sending cards, care packages, pictures of events from home, the dog, emails, all great ways to stay involved and connected to your student. And your student will probably want that. Um, Fourth tip. Communicate educational goals and expectations beforehand. Be respectful and realistic of the student's own style and interest. It's a fine line you're going to need to work out with your child, who you must remember is now becoming a young adult and able to and should make decisions on her own. You may be majored in something, it worked for you, or your partner did, or your best friend did, and you think your son or daughter should major in that. Listen to your student. It's okay to have advice, and we do know our students well, and sometimes even better than they know themselves at that age. It's great to give guidance and advice. They appreciate it, but be mindful and listen to what they're saying. College is a time of self-discovery and may be filled with ups and downs, all part of her journey. So she's going to make mistakes, which is part of the learning and maturation process, and you have to be okay with it and not dive in every time. Good luck, right? (laughs) That's a good one, right? Yeah, exactly. Plan ahead. (laughs) Yeah. Good planning and getting everything organized prior to her departure and then arrival at school 
You and your student will worry less once she lands on campus. I can't tell you planning, being organized, even for those families that aren't such planners, this is a really helpful tip. Communicating with future roommates. What do you bring? What do you add to your freshman dorm? Um, you know, a lamp, a coffee maker, piece of furniture, things like checking accounts, phone cards, spending money. Get rid of some of those worries and concerns that your student might have when he or she lands on campus. And then you won't worry because you've already brought it up with him or her. Yep. And then the last one, which I think is the most important and one that I can actually attest to and the one that I worked on, redirect time and energy previously focused on the child. So think as the parent, think about your own personal interests that maybe were neglected for a number of years for various reasons or find new interests. I know personally all three of my kids did sports. I was at a different, you know, my daughter was a swimmer and a cheerleader. I was at football games, swim meets. My son, my oldest son was basketball, soccer, and football. My younger one was tennis at a high level. I was constantly running in many directions, and my interest kind of took a back seat. So mm-hmm. now I have time to pursue both old and new hobbies, leisure activities. Um, I'm doing more, you know, obviously I'm here, I, I work for college coach, but I'm getting involved in volunteer um, activities that I could do in the evening or weekends that I couldn't do before. Um, I'm reading more. I love reading novels, and I'm finding myself now prolifically reading Finding mm-hmm. great music events. I live near New York City, so I've been like really finding new, fun, cool music. And even my kids are like, "Mom, you're more hip and cool than we are. We don't <laughs> have time for that." You know, strengthening relationships with friends that I didn't quite have time to do. Um, all of these things I have found really helped me through that first year that my son Cal went off to college. You know, now the kids are saying, God, you're so busy. You have such a full life. And they see me as healthier, so my relationship with them is healthier. Um, and it's really helped me. And I think a lot of my friends that I watch that haven't done this, that are always mm-hmm. worried, always engaging in their kids' lives, always kind of overextending or taking control, both they and their student are having a tough time. And I have yeah. found it's been a little easier for me because I let go, that almighty let go. Um, yep. When you let go, it doesn't mean you don't love them, doesn't mean you don't care. It means you're taking care of yourself, and in essence, you're letting them take care of themselves too. Well, because the whole point of all of this, right, is to ideally send adults out into the world. It's why you make the sacrifices that you do and spend the money that you do to send them to college is so that when they get out the other side, they're ready to go off, get jobs, and you know, be contributing members of society versus moving back into your basement. You don't want that. Nobody wants that. Or if you think you <laughs> no, want that, that, then but the we have thing, another issue altogether. So, yeah. But you also don't want them going off and spending. Now, this is normal for you parents and students listening. It is normal to feel a little homesick when you go off to yep. college. It's normal to say, oh, my gosh, I think I want to transfer. I hate it here. That is normal, typical behavior, and it happens to most students. My son, the first semester, felt socially isolated. You know, he mm-hmm. plays club tennis. He's involved in, in the newspaper. He was very involved, but he still felt socially isolated. All normal feelings and behaviors that happen once you get to school. So 
These are the kinds of things if you talk about, you plan for your student to experience these, then they're not, it doesn't become severe, right? And the idea is so that, you know, you encourage them to maybe for the summer, they might want to come home for financial reasons or maybe to come home during the summers, but you can also encourage them to go to the career center and find internships or courses or travel opportunities away, you know, that's yep. okay, too. I know I left at 17, and I never went back home. I mean, for yeah. vacation or maybe just to visit my parents, but I never went back home. And we're not yeah. seeing that as much now. We're not seeing no. that as much. No, I went home on the summers, but um, after my junior year of college, then that was pretty much it for me. I did spend that summer uh, on the college campus working, and then I graduated and worked for another summer and then went and moved to Boston, and, you know, I've been on my own ever since. Amy, thank you so much for joining today. I appreciate it. You are so, so welcome. Have Uh, a great rest of the day. Thanks, you too. And uh, to our listeners, don't go away. We're going to be back with answers to all the questions you've been submitting to us. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Our humanity is a thing we take for granted, but it takes many forms, and it requires much of us to fully express it. Listen to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human with host Dr. Leanne Nguyen. This program will explore topics about survival, fulfillment, hope, connection, being fully alive to ourselves and to others. Guests are people whose life experience inspires us to reflect on these questions. Tune into On Living, broadcasting live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back, everybody. Uh, our, the remainder of the show today, we're really going to be answering your questions. And if you're curious about, geez, how did they get these questions? Well, um, we always invite you to send them in. Gettingin.voiceamerica.gmail.com is our email address. Again, it's gettingin.voiceamerica.gmail.com. I'm very excited to welcome my frequent guest when we do Q&A, Kathy Ruby, who is uh, my colleague here at College Coach and also a former financial aid officer at St. Olaf, uh, and she has newly returned to Minnesota, uh, and I know she's excited to be back there, although I am disappointed to not have you within driving distance, Kathy. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Nice to be here, Beth. Okay, great. Well, we have a ton of questions, as we always do, uh, so I'm going to jump right in and start with one for you, and this comes to us from Jordan, who asks, I'm remarried, and my kid's dad is also remarried. Should I file my taxes as married separate, married or separate, so that his, well, I'm not sure. Should I file my taxes as married slash separate, so that his income isn't included on the FAFSA? Okay. <clears throat> I think I know what Jordan means. Um, okay, good. Cause so I, <laughs> I think what she means by married separate means filing separate tax returns even though you're married. So married filing separately. Okay. So, uh, so the answer to that question is how you file your taxes won't matter. So if you are married to someone and you have to fill out a FAFSA for your child, then that other, then your spouse's information has to be provided uh, on the FAFSA, no matter even if you, no matter how you filed your taxes, if, whether you filed jointly or whether you filed separately. So I think the, um, so let's let's just step back for a minute. So Jordan has kids, and she's remarried, and then her kid's dad is also remarried. And so the first question actually is who's going to fill out the FAFSA because both mm-hmm. parents, both Jordan and the kid's dad, do not provide information. It's only one parent who will provide information. So the instructions on the FAFSA tell the student, they say if your parents are divorced, um, then provide information about the parent you lived with the most in the previous 12 months. So it's all about where the student lived. Um, and so if they lived... Uh, more with one of them than the other, then they provide information about that parent. If they lived exactly equally uh, in the two Mm -hmm. places, which is pretty difficult to do considering there's 365 days in a year, but if they lived Mm -hmm. exactly equally with both parents, then they provide information about the parent that they, who they received the most financial support from in the previous 12 months. So let's say in Jordan's case, the kids lived with her the most, so Jordan mm-hmm. would be the parent who provides, who fills out the FAFSA, and she has to include her spouse. So there you go. Right. That's the big thing, right, is the fact that yes. she's remarried, and so even though her spouse is not the parent of her children, she still has to include her spouse's information. Um, I am in a similar situation to Jordan, although my ex-husband is not remarried, but I am remarried, and so... Um, if I am the one who's filling out the FAFSA, I also need to include my husband's information. He is my son's stepfather. It doesn't totally feel right, but that's, yes. those are the rules, right? But those, those are the rules. Them, those, those are the rules. rules. Yes. So you got to follow All right. because it's a federal form. And again, it doesn't matter if you file your taxes separately. So I think it usually works better to file your taxes jointly just because there are some tax breaks there. So mm-hmm. go ahead and file jointly because it's not going to make a difference. Got it. Really good advice. 
All right, Kathy, what do you have for me? All right, I've got one for you, and this is from Brendan, um, and it's actually a couple questions. He says, will colleges see my senior year classes? So do my senior year grades matter? And then on the other end of the spectrum, do colleges care about my middle school activities? And if not, why not? <laughs> well, let's see. I think the the idea here is that colleges care primarily about what you've done in high school. Uh, so that means that they are definitely going to see your senior year classes and they may see, they ultimately will see your senior year grades, although they may not, depending on when you are applying, they may not see those grades when you're when they're considering your application, but they will definitely see them when the year is done. So wherever you decide to enroll in college, your high school is going to send your final transcript to that college so that they can see that you did complete the courses that you said you were going to complete and that you earned grades that the college considers satisfactory. So if they admitted you and you were primarily an A student and then you bombed the second half of your senior year, and wound up with C's and D's, that could ultimately be very problematic for you. So, yes, your senior grades matter. Um, Yes, they're going to see your senior year classes. And, um, you know, when you're reviewing applications, especially if students are applying in a priority deadline or early action or rolling admissions or early decision, that might mean that you're reviewing a student's application and there are no grades available for senior year yet. However, you do see what the student is taking. So from that perspective, you know, the course selection is important. So on the flip side of that, what you do activity-wise in middle school is more or less irrelevant to your high school uh, profile because the colleges, as I just mentioned, are primarily focused on what you did in high school. The, the exception could be someone who's doing something in middle school that they are then continuing in high school. It's not that the colleges are looking at what you did in middle school, but more that you may be building towards something pretty important. So let's say you're a gymnast and you've been doing gymnastics since elementary school. The colleges don't really care that you've been doing it through, since elementary school, but your skill set, mm-hmm. as you're building on it, might mean that by the time you are a senior, you are such a strong gymnast that you are being recruited by the college's um, mm-hmm. gymnastics coach, right? So from that perspective, they can have some impact, but you're not listing your activities on your application and... Uh, I will tell you that my son has tried a bunch of things in middle school and nothing really mm-hmm. stuck. Uh, and it doesn't matter because no one's asking about what he did in middle school and it won't have any impact at all on his applications when it's time for him to apply a few years from now. Good. He's just been exploring. Exactly. Which is um, what you should so, do in middle school. <laughs> that is exactly what you should do in middle school. That has been my philosophy. Uh, all right. <laughs> Next question for you comes from Van, who says, I've heard, I always love, you, and long-time listeners will know this about me, when <laughs> anything starts with, I've heard that, you should always perk up your ears and think to yourself, what follows is likely to be a half-truth, a total rumor with no fact behind it. <laughs> I should certainly not assume that this is actual verified information. And I have a feeling you are going to say, yes, that's exactly what's going on here. Anyway, Van says, 
I've heard that retirement accounts are considered an asset when the school is calculating a family's ability to pay. Is this true? Ha, you're right. The answer is no, it's not true. But yes. I do want to Yeah, you were right again, Beth. <laughs> but I do want to like qualify. To right. I do want to qualify it a little bit. So, okay. um, so let's. So we're we're talking about when we say re- retirement accounts, we mean four hundred one ks, four hundred three bs, IRAs. So anything that is you know a, a retirement protected account. So the answer is no. They are not considered in the calculation of the expected family contribution. But let's just explain that a little more. So most colleges in the country, the, the vast majority of colleges in the country only use the FAFSA form, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, to calculate the expected family contribution. And the FAFSA form actually says in the instructions when you're reporting your assets, do not include the value of your retirement accounts. So for sure, if it's a college that only uses the FAFSA, uh, they will not count your retirement assets. And in fact, you never even have to report them. Um, But then there are about 200 colleges, mostly more selective, mostly private, uh, who require an additional form called the CSS profile form. And so that is essentially those institutions are saying, you know, we don't like the federal formula. When we award our institutional dollars, we're going to use a different formula to calculate your contribution, and we're going to collect some additional information. Um, But the thing is, those colleges, even in that different formula, it's called institutional methodology, even Mm -hmm. in that formula, they don't count your retirement assets. However, the CSS profile asks you what your retirement assets are, which is why I think people get the impression that they're going to be counted, right? Because if the college is asking, why would you ask? (laughs) Right, why would you ask? And so... uh, I, I can't provide an excellent explanation for why they ask. It's, uh, I worked at St. Olaf required the CSS profile, um, and the profile is it, it's a form literally designed by those institutions, and it was designed years ago, and so they decided it was an important piece. I can tell you that colleges may look at it, but they're not going to count it against you, um, but they look at it to see what your whole financial picture is, and I can tell you that as at, at St. Olaf anyway, sometimes we would use it as a way to help the family. So mm-hmm. if someone was self-employed maybe and they didn't have a lot in retirement protected assets, but they had a lot of what looked like liquid assets, mm-hmm. if they tried to make the argument that, well, you know what, I don't have a, I don't have money in a 401k, but I have all of this, you know, these other investments that I'm planning to use for retirement we might protect some of their liquid assets a bit more mm. if we could see that they didn't have much in retirement. And I have a suspicion that that's how other colleges use it as well, is during the appeal process as they're looking at a family's whole situation. Got so, it. Got it. So okay. They ask about it, but they don't use it. So Right. Which is counterintuitive, and I know that that leads to people thinking that the colleges are lying, but that's a whole other thing. And <laughs> I think the one thing that we can say is that the colleges are actually not lying. Uh, and in general, uh, if they tell you this is what we do, like with need-blind admissions and need-based financial aid, that's legitimately what they are doing. If they're yeah. not need-blind, they are considering need. If they are need-blind, they are not. That is the whole point. So, But yeah. that's a whole – we could probably spend hours talking about that and convince some people and not convince other people. So why don't we move on instead to questions that people have submitted? All right, so this one is from Todd, and he says, this is kind of a long question, but 
So my 11th grade son is interested in some highly selective schools. He's got all A's and high test scores. He's got a 35 on his ACT. His 9th and 10th grade curriculum was standard state college prep. So he had no APs. Um, he's, he's been homeschooled. But after 10th grade, he found his passion, and it was a specific branch of mathematics. So since then, he's really poured it on, including online AP English, AP Calculus BC, and AP Physics with Calculus this year. Um, And he's got more depth in his two top extracurriculars. He's applying to selective summer math programs. In other words, he's really turned it on. So he's planning a very rigorous senior year. So... um, How do such applicants look to an admissions officer? Is it a whole body of work approach, or is it more like, look where this kid is heading? Is he wasting his time and my money aiming for some top 20 schools? Uh, He really thinks it's important for his ambition to get into a top math PhD program. And then the last piece of this is, does he need to explain what changed after 10th grade in an essay, or will it be evident enough from his transcript? Okay, lots here. So let's first get to this idea that there's an expectation that students are doing APs before 11th and 12th grade. The vast majority of students are not. Um, There isn't an arms race, even if you might believe that there is, about, oh, well, you have to have a certain number of APs. Um, That isn't how it works. So I don't really see it as a particular issue that he hasn't had APs before 11th and 12th grade. Um, What might be an issue would be if he didn't do well in 11th and 10th, 9th and 10th grade. You indicate that he has all A's, so I would have to assume that he's an A student and was an A student in 9th and 10th grade. So from my perspective, I don't see really that there's anything to to address there, like that Mm -hmm. there's an issue, right? So the time when you usually do see students getting more into more selective courses is in 11th and 12th grade. The only potential downside would be, but because he's homeschooled, again, I see this as a little bit less of an issue, would be if a bunch of other kids um, were in a lot of honors or all honors in 9th and 10th grade and he didn't have anything until um, that was more advanced until 11th and 12th grade, that could sometimes be problematic. Um, But the fact that he did well and has really poured it on in junior and senior year, again, I don't really know what schools we're talking about here. It doesn't sound like we're talking about necessarily Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Ivies. Um, But even if we were, I'm not sure that they would see it as an issue. What is a positive is for sure this, that he has this passion that he's really developed and um, that he has really pursued it, that he's done very well, that he's got activities related to it. All of those things are great things mm-hmm. that we, you, know, you, you definitely want to see. Um, the one thing I do want to – so, no, I don't think he's wasting his time and I don't think he's wasting your money. Within reason, this is not an excuse to go out and apply to 20 top 20 schools, but to select <laughs> – a handful, you know, three or four that maybe look really like the best possible fit. Um, There's nothing here that would indicate to me that that wouldn't be um, realistic to consider, understanding that I haven't seen everything and that I'm basing it based on what Todd has shared with us. The one other thing I wanted to address is this idea that he needs a top 20 program to get into a top math PhD program. And I really want to point to the fact that that is not a requirement of getting into a top program. You are either a great mathematical mind or you're not. And top Mm -hmm. 20 programs don't have an exclusive lock on 
a wonderful math professors who could really nurture your son's talent and help him achieve his heights. And in fact, there can be something to be said for finding a school that isn't necessarily a top 20, quote unquote, and I also have to say based on who, who said it's a top 20 program. Is it U.S. Mm-hmm. News and World <laughs> Report? Like, that's a whole other thing. We have, uh, we have shows we've done on rankings. So, but, um, you know, I think it's, it's really more about finding the right program and the right professor who is specializing in his areas of interest, so making sure that whatever school he mm-hmm. applies to, they have a department that can support his specific areas of math interest, um, because they're, every school teaches math, but they don't always teach everything that you want, um, mm-hmm. and that there is a lot of value in being kind of a big fish in a small pond. If you are the top talent in math at that school, first of all, they might throw a ton of money at you. And second of all, um, you might just get so much more attention and so many more resources that the sky will be the limit for you in terms of the PhD program that you're trying to get into. Um, Because don't forget, all those PhDs come out and many of them want to stay in academia and they don't all go to quote unquote top Mm -hmm. 20 schools, right? They wind up in lots of different places. So if you wanted to do the math program at Cornell, I have no idea. I'm just choosing my alma mater. But um, the person who teaches you at a school that isn't necessarily as widely known might have graduated from that program and know everyone on the department. And mm-hmm. a word from that professor could be the thing that gets you in. So anyway, uh, I would say seems like a viable aspiration for him, but don't get too bogged down in this whole concept of top 20. And with that, we are going to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to do some more of your questions. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. 
live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Okay, we're back, and we're going to jump right into your questions because we still have so many more that we want to get through. Kathy, this one comes to us from John, who asks, can I use a Roth IRA to pay for college? Okay, the answer to that very easily is yes, you can use a Roth IRA to pay for college, uh, and, and many people do. Um, you'll, of course, want to think about whether you want to be spending down money that you've saved for retirement, but uh, you certainly can use the Roth IRA. When you're using it, uh, you will want to be thinking about a couple of considerations. So when you make a withdrawal from a Roth IRA, uh, what makes it unique is that when you take money out of a Roth, whether you are 40 years old or 65 years old, um, the money comes out in a certain order. And It's called the ordering rules for distribution. And the way the money comes out is first contributions come out, so any contributions you've made, and then after that, any conversions you had from traditional to Roth, and then after that, your earnings. Okay, so remember, the money comes out in a certain order. Now, the way a Roth IRA works, just to quickly say what happens with a Roth, is that you're contributing post-tax money, it grows tax-deferred, and then as long as you don't access the earnings until you're 59 and a half, the earnings remain tax-free, okay? So if you take money out of a Roth to pay for college, if you only access the contribution, so just as an example, let's say you've contributed, I don't know, 50,000 and you've got 20,000 in earnings, as long as you only take out $50,000, there's no tax consequence because the money that went in was post-tax. If you decide you need the $20,000 in earnings also, um, you can take them out. If you're over 59 and a half, great, you won't have to pay tax on them because you're over 59 and a half. If you're under 59 and a half, you will have to pay tax on those earnings, but the IRS has a few exceptions uh, for the 10% early withdrawal penalty. Uh, so you would have to pay tax on those earnings, but they would waive the 10% early withdrawal penalty because one of the exceptions is if you use the money to pay for college expenses mm. for a dependent. So you can use the Roth. Uh, if you're under 59 and a half, it's probably best if you don't access the earnings because then you could just hang on to them and they'd be tax-free mm-hmm. once you are 59 and a half. But if you have to, you'll have to pay ordinary income tax, but no 10% penalty. One other thing to think about when you make a withdrawal from a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA, even if it's not taxable for you, it still shows up on your taxes because you have to say that you made the withdrawal and then they, you tell them, you know, there's a box where you say how much of it was taxable. So it still shows up and it counts as income on the financial aid application in the year 
So two years later, essentially, when you're reporting information on the financial aid application. So you do have to be careful about that. There's a bit of a lag, but it'll inflate your income. So it could have an effect on your student's eligibility for need-based financial aid if they're receiving need-based financial aid, and they may not Mm -hmm. be in the first place. So you just have to be aware that a couple years later, it'll inflate your income on the financial aid application. But yes, absolutely, you can use a Roth to pay for college. All right. That was definitive. (laughs) What do you have for me? (laughs) All right. What do I have for you? Okay. So we have actually a couple listeners who posed a similar question. Um, And the question basically is, uh, I understand that the most highly selective colleges generally want four years of a foreign language. Um, And her son took AP Latin as a junior because he started Latin in middle school, as the school typically does. Um, And there's some honors Latin class that he can take as a senior, uh, but she's not sure if he should take it. He's a math science kid, may want two AP sciences senior year. He may also want to take an AP computer science or some other AP. So do you think Mm -hmm. that'd be okay, or does he need to take a foreign language because he needs four years? And the other person asked essentially the same same question. You know, their student started the language in middle school again. And so is it a poor choice to skip year five of the foreign language in place of an elective course that the student's really interested in, assuming the elective is a legitimately challenging course and not not basket weaving? So Sure. There's your question. I will say, all right, there's a few things going on here, and I will say that this is a question we get frequently. And so what I will say and have said and will continue to say until probably the day that I either stop doing this work or die is that when you are looking at the most selective colleges in the country, the goal is always to go far above and beyond and ideally to have all five major subject areas all four years. That includes math, science, English, history, and foreign language. These schools are looking for students to be broadly educated in high school and uh, to narrow their focuses when they get to college and not before then. This is the general rule of thumb. Sure, are there people who, for whom they are able to kind of work around this or make different choices? Yes. Does that apply to the average kid? No. Does that apply to your kids? Probably not. So my answer here is if you've maxed out the high school curriculum in the foreign language and by this junior year and there isn't another option, then by all means, fill in that spot by doubling up in another area in the senior year. But if there's an opportunity to continue with the foreign language, my personal preference would be I I think he should continue with it unless um, there's really a great reason why not to. And I'm not entirely sure that doubling up in another area is a great reason. The slight exception that I would make, and even this is slight, would be if he's planning to major in engineering, they are generally the ones who care the least about whether or not you've continued at the Mm -hmm. foreign language. Doesn't mean they don't care about it, but that if you've hit the AP level in, in Latin, they might be more okay with opting not to do that honors level Latin class in senior year and instead to add in something like AP computer science or another AP science or another AP math or something like that uh, in its place in the senior year. Um, Colleges really aren't focused on what you're doing in middle school, 
especially at the highly selective level. So they don't Mm -hmm. really care that you took foreign language in um, middle school. Your high school might count that towards the graduation requirements. But remember, we're talking about going way above and beyond, not (laughs) doing what is required for graduation, right? It's way better, more, not better, but it is about doing more than just what the high school requires. So to David, who's asking, is it okay if he skips the fifth year, I would say no, that that would probably not be okay, unless Mm -hmm. he is, um, fits what I was just saying. And since David didn't mention um, that the student was going to hit the AP level in junior year, um, I would even say more importantly, it really the ideal if the school has an AP program would be to go to the AP level in all five of those major areas, including foreign language. So Mm -hmm. um, I would say that that would not be the ideal. Do you not get in because you opted not to take foreign language in senior year? No. It's never about one course choice. But a really great application is about a series of course choices that you make along the way, and this is one of them. And so if you make a series of choices, and some of them are good and some of them are Eh, then that all adds up to an application that is okay, but not going to put you over the top. So, um, and if you are interested in learning a little bit more about this, I wrote a blog for the Huffington Post. I wrote a blog series for the Huffington Post uh, titled Who Gets Into Harvard? It's about an eight or nine um, blog sort of series. There are eight or nine blogs in the series. And so if you search Elizabeth Heaton Huffington Post who gets into Harvard, that should pull up uh, some of this. And, and I do go into detail for those of our listeners who are very focused on highly selective, which is certainly not everyone who's listening. All right. Yeah. Well, let's jump to your next question, Kathy. And that is, uh, comes from Felice. Can I withdraw funds from my 401k to pay for college? Oh, that sounds somewhat <laughs> similar to what we were just talking about. <laughs> yes, but it Similar but different. So I'm ah. glad I'm glad she asked that question because it is uh, you. Sometimes you can withdraw from your 401k, but not always. But it's certainly not necessarily as advisable. So um, so the when it comes to a 401k, uh, in order if you're not of retirement age, I'm assuming she's not. Um, <clears throat> if you're not of retirement age. Sometimes you can't actually access the funds in your 401k as a withdrawal unless you're experiencing economic hardship. So that varies by plan. You would have to apply for economic hardship to see if you could get money out of the 401k in the first place. Um, And then if you could, even if you could, uh, the, the danger there is when you withdraw from your 401k, of course, you are depleting your retirement savings. Um, and you're also uh, you're going to have to pay tax on everything you withdraw and a 10% penalty. And if you're working, I mean, you're probably, you know, you're probably in one of your highest tax brackets because the whole idea of a 401k is that you'll pay tax on it later when you're in a lower tax bracket when you're in retirement. So you're going to end up paying tax at a very high rate and you're going to pay the 10% penalty. Uh, the other thing that people will sometimes ask about doing is taking a loan from their retirement account, which, uh, you know, that's a different story because you are paying back the 401k. But you have to think carefully about that as well. Uh, most 401k loans, if number one, not all plans allow it, but some do. Um, and if you are allowed to borrow from your 401k, usually you're only given a five-year repayment term. 
So if you have to repay that loan in five years, uh, if it's only amortized over five years, you probably are pretty close to being able to afford to actually pay the college directly. Because when you think about it, college expenses are four years mm-hmm. and, and that loan term is only five years. So you'd want to think carefully about whether taking a loan is advisable as well. It can also be risky because if you leave your employer, then you have to immediately repay the 401k loan. Uh, I think under the new tax law, you have to repay it in full by the by April 15th of the tax year in which you leave. So if you left in 2018, you'd have to repay it by April 15th of mm-hmm. 2019, so when you're filing your taxes. So it can be risky that way as well. And then there's simply the opportunity cost of what it's not making when you've borrowed that money and you're repaying it, um, the earnings right. that you're losing in the meantime. So anyway, you know, 401ks, you want to be very careful. All right. Kathy, I think we have time for one quick uh, well, we have time for one question. I think this one I can make my answer quick. So it's on okay. me. It's on you. So is it, uh, okay, wait a minute. Okay, yeah, my high, uh, wait a minute. Yes, so my high school includes uh, eighth grade Spanish, math, and earth science on my transcript, uses those eighth grade grades when calculating the overall GPA. Will Ivy League and similarly selective colleges consider eighth grade performance when it's included in the GPA? Um, so the answer here is, again, the colleges are not really looking at performance in middle school. If it's factoring into the GPA that your school um, does, that's, that's fine, and it maybe that will impact your rank. I, you know, I don't really know what the school is doing, so that's something to consider. But um, I know that many schools are recalculating a GPA, and they're pulling out only the core courses taken in high school. So mm-hmm. they won't even be considering those in their recalculated GPA. Um, so the answer is no. It's not going to be part of the GPA that those highly selective schools are likely to be using for you. Again, it may impact you from your school's perspective if they rank and if that, you know, so it could come into play there. But from the college's mm-hmm. point of view um, and their GPA, it, it won't. Um, Kathy, thanks so much for being here. Um, thanks to Amy who joined us. Next week, Ian is hosting, uh, and we're talking about the downside of overpackaging yourself uh, in your applications. We're also going to be looking at financial aid eligibility and academic progress, highlighting extracurricular activities and supplemental essays. Um, visit our archives, see our blog, lots of great free information and all of those. Um, and don't forget, We are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.